15 years ago, New York was the only city I'd ever known, born and raised here, uh, lived initially near Columbia Press, and slowly, if you know the immigrant story, uh, typically everyone flies into New York City in the 60s and 70s, and then they slowly make their way up north to Westchester or out east to Long Island, so my parents made the trek slowly up to the Bronx and then Westchester, but New York City was all that I had known, I'd been to elementary school, high school, and then college, but 15 years ago, I found myself packing up my bags and deciding one weekend that I'm going to move overseas. Uh, I didn't have a lot of clarity on what that looked like, so I remember Labor Day weekend looking at mom and dad, and if you know, again, anything about being in an immigrant home, being in an Indian home, there is a procedure and protocol to when someone who is single can ever leave their parents' uh, tutelage, like under their authority. And I knew that, and I knew my parents would never let me leave until I got married or whatever the plan was. So one weekend, Labor Day weekend, I looked at mom and dad and said, I'm leaving. And they said, when? I said, tomorrow. <laughs> and that was it. They couldn't stop me. I brought my ticket. And so I found myself moving overseas and working at an institution in southern India. I was teaching philosophy and ethics. And then I slowly became uh, an administrator there uh, with the plan of living there for the rest of my life. Uh, got married to a beautiful Georgia woman, the state, not the country, brought her over there. And that's when you realize this is not a one-person decision. But during my time in India, if you asked me, Stan, what did you miss the most about living in another country? There's a lot of things I could say. You know, I missed good roads, which was true. I missed McDonald's, I missed a Big Mac, which you don't get the Big Mac there, you get the Maharaja Mac, which is nonsense. Um, not the Big Mac. There are many things I could say that I missed. I could say something sentimental, like I missed my family. But, though some of all that's true, if you ask me what I missed the most, from moving from New York City and living overseas in India, it is this. I'm an old man, but I'm still a child at heart. I will be honest, you know, if you fly overseas, you know that you can bring two luggages of 50 pounds each, and no joke, one of my luggage, every time I would fly back, would be filled with nothing but Oreo cookies. Now, I don't know if you've ever experienced an Oreo before. But there are a few things that make you stop in your tracks and say there must be a God. He must exist out there because when you actually experience the full wonder and beauty of an Oreo, your life, listen, will never be the same again. And the reason I would carry this overseas was because the only way India would get Oreos was from Singapore, and then there was a milk production issue in Singapore during the time I was living there, so you could not find it. And it was cheaper for me to actually fly back to the US and carry an entire 50 pounds of this substance. Now, there's some of you that are sitting there thinking, I've never had an Oreo, to which I say, I forgive you, I really do, because this cookie, this cookie actually will turn your sorrow into joy and your mourning into dancing. It has the ability. Now, now the truth is I can spend my whole afternoon here preaching about the Oreo. 
which I can, which I can, I can do it. I could sit here and we could sing songs about the Oreo. We can recite great poems about the Oreo. Or you could even, this is true, call the 1-800-OREO number, which is a 24-hour Oreo hotline. So if you're ever bored or sad or wondering and contemplating the meaning of life, you can actually call the 1-800-NABISCO number and there will be someone on the other side to pick up the call and give you company for however long you need or answer any question you have about the Oreo. Don't ask me how I know, but I do. Now, this is the problem, isn't it, church? That I could sing all the songs out there about the Oreo. I could actually stand up here at this pulpit and talk about the Oreo. We can recite the entire nutritional facts about the Oreo. But you will never know what an Oreo is unless you take the Oreo and you put it in your mouth. There is no amount of information you can possess about this cookie that'll actually do justice. The invitation from the company is simple. You've got to eat it to know what it truly is. The passage of scripture that we read is that. Jesus Christ stands in front of an audience and he says this, I'm the real Oreo. There's some of you that sit there and say, I've never had an Oreo, but you know what? I couldn't afford it because it was $8 a pack, which is what it actually cost at this Christides or the bodega across the street. It's $9.50 a pack. What? It was not that expensive 15 years ago. So some of you say, I can't afford an Oreo, but you know, I've had the Target brand or the key food brand, and I think that's okay. No, that is a lie, and we will pray for you afterwards. Jesus Christ stands up in front of the audience, and this is what he's saying. Your whole life you've been eating the key food Target brand Oreo, and it's not the real deal. I'm the real Oreo. And if you eat of me, your life will never be the same again. It will be radically different. It will be completely transformed. And so in the passage, this is the thesis. This is what he establishes for us. He says, every one of us longs for satisfaction. We long to feel full. We long to feel as if we have arrived, as if we have made it, and everything's going to be okay. We long for the deep desire inside of us to be satisfied. The second thing he says is, that's true of all of us. Then I'm the real Oreo. I'm the one that can provide satisfaction. And so we're going to break that down. We're going to see that to be true. We all long for satisfaction, and Jesus says, I alone can satisfy and in order for us to see how that is proven, we see four statements that are made through the passage of Scripture that we just read. So if you have your Bibles, open it up. John chapter 6, we're going to look at four specific statements to prove what Jesus wants us to see as true. And the hope is that at the end you would partake of him and that you would leave this place utterly satisfied 
The first statement comes from verse 27. Now, you need to know what is happening here. Jesus has just fed 5,000 men at at a crusade of his, at an event of his. 5,000 men, not including women and children. And some scholars put that number, and when you include women and children, anywhere from 10 to 15,000 people. So imagine Madison Square Garden packed out. Everyone is starving, and everyone is fed with five hot dog buns and two hot dogs. That's what Jesus does. He feeds 5,000 men, 15,000 people, five loaves, two fishes, and everyone is filled. They're filled to overflow. They've got food coming out of their noses, the text tells us. They are filled. And yet we see that the only reason they follow Jesus is that their bellies could be filled. And Jesus says in verse 27, this is the first of the four statements I want us to look at this morning to see is Jesus' claims true. We all want satisfaction and he alone can satisfy. Verse 27, this is what Jesus says. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. Do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. The first statement is this. Do not work for food that spoils, for food that perishes. That one statement, we can break it down a few ways. This is what Jesus is actually calling for us to see. The first thing he wants to see in that statement, do not work for food that spoils, is this. There is a hunger and an appetite in every human being here on earth. And we will go to anything or anyone to satisfy that hunger. There is a deep appetite in all of us. There is a hunger in every single human. And we will do whatever it takes to fill that hunger. We will move to a city. We will work 90 hours a week. We will befriend anyone that will talk to us. We will accumulate, we will save, we will pad up our LinkedIn profile. We will do whatever it takes because there is a hunger in every one of us. And every human will be on this journey to try to satisfy that. And many of us this evening, this afternoon, in the name of that hunger, we've packed our bags and we've moved We've gone to the best schools. We've studied under the best teachers. We've found the best jobs. We've married the best-looking people deep down inside because that hunger inside of us is calling us to say, is this what I'm here for? Is there more? Why do I wake up with a groaning in my soul? It must mean I need to get promoted. It must mean I need to make more money. It must mean I need another degree. Jesus says, every one of us has this hunger. That's the first thing he wants us to see. Do not work for food that spoils. It's just saying every one of us has a hunger that we will try to satisfy. But the reason we're not satisfied is because of this, right, class? The second law of thermodynamics. Jesus is not making culinary terms here. He's establishing a scientific principle, isn't he, church? 
The second law of thermodynamics is simple. As an engineer, let me tell you what it is. And for the 90% of you that might be engineers here, second law of thermodynamics establishes this. Everything loses heat. Everything is on a trajectory to decay. Everything. And the reason our hunger is never satisfied is because we find ourselves trying to be satisfied with the thing or the person to which there is an expiration date. We eat of finance which constantly leaks. It's like trying to hold water in your hand. No matter how tight you hold it, it leaks. We hold on to friendship thinking that will satisfy, but that too leaks. When I got married to the beautiful woman I got married to, I still remember my wedding day. I stood in front of this woman whom I, who I loved and dated for many years. And at the altar, I was bound to say words of an oath to her. And do you know what the oath was? Baby, I will love you in sickness and in health. I will love you for richer or for poorer. Till, till class, till when? Till the second law of thermodynamics takes Everything is bound. And the reason we are not satisfied is because we realize the thing we feed ourselves with expires. If you make the mistake I made, I ended up going into ministry thinking, well, that's got to fulfill me, right? If I serve Jesus and go into the church, and that's what I ended up plunging my soul into. If I fill my day with things of God, and that too I found out. Second law of thermodynamics. That too expires. And so Jesus establishes everything spoils. So in the do not work for food that spoils. He says, one, you have a hunger, but two, everything expires. And three, the reason you have no satisfaction in that everything that expires is that because you are not finite. You don't expire. You are more than the collocations of atoms that have collided together. You are more than the total sum of your net worth or your bank account. You are more than the total sum of your LinkedIn profile. You are more than the total sum of your sexual desires or your proclivities. You are more. There is more to you than meets the eye. That the reason you're not satisfied is because you don't expire and everything else around you expires. And you are invited to something or someone that doesn't. And so Jesus is saying, you are more. Do not believe the lie that this body is all that you are. And if, as long as you primp it up and prop it up and make it look better, that at the end of the day, everything you invest in expires. You are more. You are more. Do not work for food that spoils. One, you're hungry. You're hungry. Two, second law. Three, you are more. But four, in that one phrase, do not work for food that spoils, Jesus shows us what sin actually is. I love what C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity. He says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. A baby feels hunger or there is such a thing as food. 
A duckling wants to swim, well, there's such a thing as water. Adults feel sexual desire, well, there's such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Jesus, in that statement, do not work for food that spoils, helps us see what sin actually is. Kierkegaard, in his book, Sickness Unto Death, I love his simple definition of sin, building your identity on anything or anyone other than God. What do I mean? When God makes the world, remember, book of beginnings in the book of Genesis, he looks at all of creation and he says, the sun and the moon and the stars, he says, everything is good, 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 good. He says, everything is good. And then he makes man and he says, very good. And if you want to know what sin actually is, if I had a board, I would write it here. Sin is when you take what is good, G-O-O-D, take what God has made, and you simply erase an O. You take what is good and make it God. That's it. Jesus, do not work for food that spoils. This is what he wants you to see. That sin makes you believe that the key food Oreo is the real deal. The target brand is really enough. That if you make the good ultimate, which is God, that that's what you really need. But sin lies, sin tricks, and deceives. Sin gets us to believe that everything else is God but God himself. And so in this first phrase, Jesus says, do not work for food that's spoiled. It's loaded, but he wants you to see what he's setting us up for. Because we see the second phrase that comes up. The second statement I want us to take a look at. Jesus says this, do not work for food that spoils. And in verse 28, there is a natural response to Jesus' claim. Look at verse 28. Verse 28, they say this, then they said to him, after hearing this, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Pause. So Jesus says, do not work for food that spoils. Everything expires. You keep running this rat race, and you're constantly dissatisfied. And there's a reason why. It's because you are more than meets the eye. You are not finite. And so they look at Jesus, and they ask a very logical question, don't they, church? What must we do? What must we do? Tell me, what is it that I need to accomplish now? I get what you're saying, Jesus. Just tell me what to do so that I can actually get the thing you're talking about. What must I do? Augustine, the city of God, labels that ideology, homo in caritas in se, that humans are curved within. Translation, that humans are selfish, self-centered, self-righteous, but we are also, hear this, self-reliant. What must I do? Give me the 10 steps I need to follow so that I can be a better me. 
Tell me how I'm supposed to look within myself so that I can actually rise to the challenge I've been offered by the world so that I can actually find satisfaction. The solution is me. I plus do are two of the most powerful words we hold on to when we try to achieve the things we attempt to achieve. The solution is within me. I make good God, but the truth is, deep down inside, there is a belief that I believe I am God. That I know what's best. That I can find the solution that if I work hard enough, is that not the story of the world? That if I work hard enough, I could achieve more than my parents, I can live a better life, I can provide for my family, I can get into the best schools, I can climb the ladder. If I can do, I plus do, the solution is within me. But I live long enough to know this. It's not a profound statement, but it's tweetable, I think. We suck at being God. We hate the city we pick to live in, the apartments we choose, the people we marry, the degrees we get. We hate every decision we make, but yet, deep down inside, we actually functionally believe we know what's best. We're miserable at the jobs we've accepted, We're frustrated with the friends we've surrounded ourselves with. We believe we are actually good at being God. What must I do? And so naturally, when you see your own limitations, there is this pull and push. Maybe religion has a solution, and therein there lies the problem with religion. That God is here and I am here and if I can do enough to climb my way to God, then maybe, maybe God will pat me on the back and applaud me for my efforts and give me the thing I think I deserve. Statement number two, what must I do? Can I ask you a question this morning? Do you find yourself asking that? Is there something I should accomplish? Is there something I must now fulfill so that I can actually experience satisfaction, true, deep, soul satisfaction, where I can wake up in the morning And though nothing has changed about my day, actually experience what the Bible says, joy unspeakable, hope inexplainable, grace undeniable. Is there something I can do? And when they asked him that question, we see the third statement Jesus makes, verse 33. Let's take a look at his response. Jesus says, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The bread of life is he. 
I'm not an English person, and so English is, you know, I speak funny, and, I, and my grammar is not maybe the best, and so I'm not a literary scholar like some of you, and I'm thinking of Mary Sue right now, like English is your thing, but I do find it quite interesting, no? What must I do was their question, and his response is the bread of life is he. There's a what being asked, but the answer is a who. What must we do? And the answer that they were hoping for is give me five new commandments, give me a whole new social construct, give me a worldview or philosophy I could follow. And Jesus responds with satisfaction is not a concept or an idea. It's not a philosophy or a set of rules. Satisfaction is a person. Someone to know and be known by. Someone to love and be loved by. Someone to pursue and be pursued by. Satisfaction is actually a person. And who is this person? God, he says here, who's come down. Interesting. Satisfaction is to know that God has come down for you. What is he saying? That you are not the total sum of your actions or your desires or the collocation of atoms that you were made for more and by one who is more. You are made in the image of God. And the reason you are not satisfied and everything is bound by the second law of thermodynamics is because you were made not by the thing that you do. You were made by the one who created you in his image. You are made by God. The one who is not bound by the second law of thermodynamics. The one who created the law for everything else. The bread of life is he who has come down. That God actually plunged himself into your story fully aware that everything else around you would not satisfy. So instead of you chasing after the things that don't, he chases after us. He comes after us. And he does that with one intention. The text tells us the bread of life is he that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. His desire is this, that he plunges himself into your story fully aware that because of sin you will never pursue him, so he pursues us. And he pursues us with one intention. It's in the text that we would have life. Life. Interesting. The word life in the Greek can mean one of three things, right, class? It can mean bios, biology, your body. It can mean suke, psyche, psychology. Or it can mean zoe, a quality of life. Jesus says the bread of life that has plunged himself into your story that pursues you, he has come for one reason, so that you could have life, not bios, which, which passes away, not suitcase psychology, but he says he comes so that you could have quality of life, quality of life. 
Do you know what that means, quality of life? The only example I could possibly think of, there's many examples, but I remember the first time I felt some of that quality 15 years ago when I was working overseas. The college I worked for would send me to travel all over the world because we had students that came from the, the Gulf region, the Middle East, Africa, Korea, and so I would find myself traveling to different parts to meet students and their families. And every time they would have me fly, they would fly me business class. Now, business class, when you go on these carriers, these Middle Eastern carriers, they're not like Delta and American, which is just a little bit of couch, and they give you a little bit of fizzy water. Like, these Middle Eastern carriers, if you've ever been on it, listen, a kid from the Bronx being on these airlines, it would be blown away. I'll be on Emirates in business class. And it would be a little house on the airplane you would be sitting on. And I remember my first experience about 15 years ago on Emirates in business class sitting there. There was an actual moment, no joke, where they make your bed for you and they tuck you in. Listen, the last time I was tucked in was 21. So you can just imagine as I'm being tucked in, 10,000 feet in the sky, flying to another country. I remember as I'm being tucked in, I thought, this is the life. <laughs> not bios, not suke, but zoe. Zoe. That nothing had changed about my present environment. All my problems still stayed the same. But there was a quality of life that I felt that stopped when my plane landed in Dubai. And Jesus looks at you and says, you're hungry, but if you really know what life is, the one that's plunged himself into your story, what he offers you is a zoe, a quality that even in the midst of chaos, in the midst of pain, in the midst of fear and anxiety all around you, you could actually feel as if someone is tucking you into bed every night because of Zoe. That's quality. The bread of life is he who pursues you. Which leads us to the fourth and final statement Jesus makes. The question naturally is, who is therefore then that bread of life? And look at what Jesus says in verse 35, and this is how I'm going to land the plane. Verse 35, Jesus answered to them, this is where he makes that famous statement, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. You see, if Jesus had stopped at the bread of life is he, God who has come, it opens up the door to being pursued by any idea you have about God. But Jesus closes that door for us in verse 35. And as New Yorkers, this is challenging because he pushes up against the concept to which we're being fed. Your true path is whatever path you decide it to be. Satisfaction is however you choose to make sense of the reality of God. And Jesus slams it and says, no, it's not true. Because the bread of life is he, and he says the final statement, I am he. 
and whoever comes to me. And this is what Jesus was establishing, that every one of us takes good things and make it God things. And because of that, we are on a race where we constantly feel like we're drinking syrup after running a marathon. We're thirsty, we're still hungry, we're still wanting more. And God, fully aware that we would never make sense of the reality that he wants us, plunges himself into our story in the person of Jesus Christ. Every other form of satisfaction is I do, you strive, you should accomplish. Every other form of satisfaction is based, dependent on us. Depends on us. But when Jesus made that statement, this is what he says. The reason you're still hungry is because deep down inside you are self-reliant, but I have come. Because no longer do you need to do, but I will do for you what you cannot. What do I mean? If we were made in the image of God and have to be reconnected back with the one who can truly satisfy, not bound by the second law of thermodynamics, what do we need? We now have a God who pursues us in Jesus. And this is what we see. We see the length he's willing to go so that we would never wake up another day and not think, is there more? Can I truly experience Zoe? And what lengths was he willing to go to unite us back with the one who made us in his image? When Jesus called himself the bread of life, he did it on purpose, didn't he, church? Because he would bring up the bread reference one more time, wouldn't he? And we're about to go to a table that reminds us when he brought up that bread reference. The night Jesus was betrayed, he sat with his disciples for his final meal, and he took the bread, he lifted it up and he gave thanks. Whosoever was his invitation, whosoever would come, one bread will fill one mouth. But when Jesus lifted the bread, he broke it. And what did he say? This is my body, broken for you. When the good things we make God things do this to us, leave us broken and wanting more. Do you know the lengths to which your God chose to rescue you and me? That on the cross, he would break himself. He would absorb our brokenness for us so that through his brokenness, we might be made whole. When everything we strive for will demand we lay down our life 
your job, your income, your family, your college education. He is the only satisfier that lays down his life for us instead. And in that act of Jesus willing to lay down his life, this is what he declared to you and to me, that I have come to bear your brokenness so that through my brokenness you might be made whole and that right now every single person in this house and in the world would know that I am loved and I am accepted and I am embraced, I am pursued and I am chosen by a God that loves me not because of what I can do but because of what he has done for me. That I am a Christian not because of the statement, what must I do? But I am a Christian because every one of us can sing of that anthem, look at what he has done. That we are saved by grace. That we are accepted not because of our LinkedIn profile or because of our bio data or CV or resume or whatever you have stored on your computer, but you are saved because God looks at you irrespective of what you've accomplished or how much you've messed up, that he looks at you and says, oh, that you would believe that I love you, that you are mine, and nothing can separate you from my love. And if you don't believe me, Look at the cross. Oh, look at the cross. That sin has power, but oh, I am so much more powerful that I can reorient your loves back to your true love. That I can liberate you from the rat race so you could run into my arms. That I can rescue you from the blinders put upon your eyes that make you believe that you are just the total sum of what you accomplished. Oh, that you would see you are the total sum of what I've accomplished. I lost everything to make you my everything. So what does this mean? Jesus says, eat of me. Eat of me. What does that mean? It's a personal invite. Neighborhood church, I pray you hear this from a kid from this city. The invitation is personal. It's Jesus looking at you and saying, don't come to me based on someone else's story. I want you to try me. I want you to see who I am. Would you pursue me? Whether you are a follower of Jesus or not, would you pursue and see who I truly am? Not based on what Stan Thomas preached, but you, you follow, you see. It's a personal invite to not rely on just others or their stories or their experience, but to see the Oreo for yourself. I think the second thing he invites us to is this. This is a large city and yet I have never felt more lonely at times than when I'm crowded on a subway and I wonder, what's going on in my soul? You are invited to make sense of this invite with a community of brothers and sisters. And I want to encourage you, if you are not 
connected to Neighborhood Church. Do it. Be connected. Take a step. Be a part of this family. Join a small group. Go to the Super Bowl event. But be with others who could guide you and help you on this journey to make sense of this invitation. But don't believe the lie we've been taught. You can do it yourself. We can. Eat of me and have life. Let's pray.